I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing via iTunes. The show will automatically download to your computer every week, which sounds a little creepy and Big Brother-ish, but just don't think about that part. Think about the fact that you don't have to do a thing. It just happens in the background when you're not looking. Yeah, that's creepy again. Just subscribe. It's easy, really. Visit LiveWireRadio.org for details. All right, moving on to Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Four. Four. Against. All right, two to one. To Kill a Mockingbird will be banned in school libraries for the upcoming year. Really, people? Next, Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Four. Four. Against. Okay, the PTA vote is two to one. Chatterley will also be banned throughout all school district libraries. All right, this has gone way too far. All right, the board recognizes Jane Klinberg. Every year we get together for this discussion, and every year more and more students are deprived of some of the greatest works of literature ever written. Most of these books are amoral, hedonistic, or profane. There needs to be censorship. The freedom to access information and express ideas, even if those ideas are unorthodox or unpopular, must be upheld. Who knows what kind of crazy ideas these kids will get if all they're reading is this British smut. Lady Chatterley's lover is not British smut, Gwen. We need to protect their fragile little minds, Jane. We need to respect their decisions. All right, all right, all right. Let's just put it to a vote. All those in favor of continuing to ban the books on my list, say aye. Aye. Nay. Oh, I don't know what to do. Come on, Devin. You're the deciding vote. Banning books is fascist. If we don't stop now, where will it end? Okay, I guess... I vote nay. All right, the nays have it. We will not be banning any more books this year. Yes! Lord, help us! Okay, for the record, I'll just briefly go through the remaining books on my list. But to reiterate, none of these will be banned from school libraries. Let's see here. Better Late Than Never, a how-to on performing your own female circumcision by (gasps) Edie Smith. What? You see, Jane? You see? Oh, yikes. Uh, Another book that will not be banned... Till They're All Dead, One Man's Journey to Kill Every Last Eagle in America by Wade Pickens. Okay, that that doesn't sound very educational. Not the eagle. Who would even publish that? Uh, Next, Get Er Done, The Life Story of Larry the Cable Guy. No! Oh, God, what have I done? Yes, that's that's truly horrific. Uh, Moving on, J.J. Fredrickson's How to Bomb a PTA Meeting on Banned Books. I was going to ban that one, and now I can't. Great. Thanks, Jane. I didn't know it was on the list. Can I take my vote back? See what you've done, Jane? Now our kids are ruined. They're ruined! Uh Uh-oh. What? Well, there's something on here I completely forgot about. Oh, Lord, save us. Really wish I had known it was on here before we had that vote. I'm not sure this is safe for anybody. We need a revote. Afraid it's too late for that, Devin. We have no choice but to cross our fingers and hope our children know to just stay away. It's subversive and erotic, yet a thrilling adventure that speaks to all generations. It's light, but also anti-establishment and mildly controversial to those without a sense of humor. It's... It's... From the beautiful Latin Theater in Portland, Oregon, you can ban my book when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. It's about assisted suicide. It's Livewire. And now it's the host of Livewire, who doesn't believe in banning books, 
except the Twilight series. She's hosting a book burning in her backyard this Sunday. Courtney Hammeister! Welcome to the show, everybody. We are so happy to be back at the Aladdin Theater tonight for our sixth annual Wordstock Extravaganza. I couldn't stop myself. I wooed. For those who don't know, if you're listening from another state, Wordstock is Portland's Festival of the Book, where over 150 authors from all over the country converge for readings and panels and just generally things that make Portland 20% smarter than other cities after they're gone. Right around there. But then we drink all the beer and then we just, it goes away. Um... (laughs) So tonight, amazing guests tonight. One of our favorite This American Life guests is on the show. Author David Rockoff is with us. Love him. The author of Motherless Brooklyn is here with his latest book, Chronic City. Jonathan Lethem is with us tonight. And you are going to love our musical guest. She's a young woman with a gorgeous voice beyond her years. Sarah Jackson Holman is here tonight. You're going to love it. But before we get to all that, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Shelley McClendon, Pat Janowski, our siren of sound, and as usual, Scott Poole, the poet and the author of, of The Cheap Seas, he's joining us tonight. For those of you new to Livewire, Scott sits in the audience in the course of just one single hour, the amount of time it took Byron to sharpen his quill... Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses everything that we've learned during the night. So welcome, Scott, and you should go get writing, I think. And of course, we can't do any of it without our amazing band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Ralph Huntley. So as I said, David Rakoff will be with us later to talk about his new book, Half Empty. And it's a series of essays that explores pessimism. And earlier this year, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book called Bright Sighted, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. (laughs) Now... She's a really great writer, very smart. What her book posits is that all of this positive thinking can actually be damaging because in some cases, if we think all we have to do to get something is to will it into our lives or think positively about it, we won't actually do what it takes to make it happen, right? And in the case of, say, I don't know, getting medical treatment, this could go horribly wrong, right? I actually feel pretty smug about both of their books um, because I was way ahead of the curve. I have always been wholeheartedly against positive thinking. Um, I mean, it was weird. I didn't realize it was a stance when I was taking it at the time, but ever since I was a kid, I just knew, like, I'm going to fail so colossally at my ballet recital that angry protests are going to break out outside, and I'm going to suck so enormously at my piano concert that Barry Manilow is going to write a song about how poorly I played I write the songs. I I feel like I managed to bring pessimism to a whole new level, which was funny because my father did the exact opposite. He had such unrealistically high expectations for events and family vacations and the people in his life that they almost always let him down. And what was in reality a lovely family reunion turned into a dismal failure in his mind because it didn't look like an episode of Eight is Enough, which was a terrible show, which I could have told him before the show even started because I knew everything was going to be terrible. But I actually feel like I might have found the solution as I evolved into something that looks like a grown-up. I now have no expectations, and I have to say it works pretty well. I highly recommend it, actually. Because most of the time, life is willing to give you at least a little tiny bit more than nothing. And when you weren't expecting anything at all, a teeny bit more than nothing is a boon, right? So you can use that if you like. You should try it tonight. Don't have any expectations for the show. And when you walk out of here, you will just have the best night of your life. So, no. I'm not, I can't promise you that because it goes against everything I believe. But it will be a great show. And in fact, this is proof. Uh, tonight's musical guest started her career with a post on Blind Pilot's MySpace page 
What happened was Expunged Records president Anthony McNamer clicked on her link and was so blown away from her voice that he knew he had to talk to her and hear her in person. The first record from this classically trained pianist out in May on Expunged has already sparked comparisons to Adele, Feist, and Nora Jones. And at 21 years old, that's some pretty impressive company to be in. With songs from When You Dream, please welcome Sarah Jackson Holman to Livewire. The modest rose puts forth a thorn, the humble sheep a threaten and horn. While the lily white shall in love delight, not a thorn nor a threat stain her beauty bright. Thank you, Jackie. And tell us how William Blake's The Lily represents the Romantic period. Um, well, I see it as Blake's response to the rapid industrialization of Britain at the time. Like, the lilies of Britain won't change despite the countryside diminishing. Very nice, Jackie. Thank you. And who else has a poem from the Romance period they'd like to share? I guess I'll go. Jed, wow. <laughs> I'm surprised that you're actually in class today. The baseball team doesn't have a big game or something this afternoon? No, it's tomorrow. Oh. Okay, well, um, what will you be reading for us today? I have brought in a collection of poems by a poet named Fabio. Um, I found it on a CD called Fabio After Dark. Fabio, the romance novel cover guy? Yeah, my mom and her divorce recovery group listen to it at wine tastings, Fridays at my house. Oh. Jed, I know that you've been absent for most of the semester, but let me remind you that we are studying the romantic poets today. Right. We're supposed to bring in romantic poems, right? <laughs> and Fabio's like super duper... You know, um, I want to encourage your participation, Jed, and you actually did put some effort into this assignment, so uh-huh. uh, let's hear it. Let's... Uh, Please share with us some romantic poetry from Fabio. Okay. Um, This one is called Slow Dancing. And I I hope it's okay, Professor, but I brought in some music to play in the background. Oh, okay. Okay. 
A long, slow dance can be the best way to bring a woman close to me. On my terrace, or maybe a sunset at the beach, her caress is my command. Well, thank you, Jed. You, you read that very well. Thank you. <laughs> can you tell us why you like that poem? Um, well, it doesn't rhyme, but, you know, I still think it sounds pretty nice. Oh. And uh, my mom usually puts that one on repeat. Hmm. Yes, that image of slow dancing on a terrace is pretty romantic, uh-huh. you know, being held. Yeah. And I surprisingly like that music. Mm. Uh, Professor Clark, I have a poem by Byron I'd like to share. Yes, Clay, we'll get to you in a second. Hey, Jeb. Yeah. Um, it looks like you have more poems for us. Uh, I sure do. This Great. one is called Movies. I like to take a special lady to a cinema where we can hold hands in the dark and whisper very quietly about what we see. I wonder, will she kiss me like that? Will I always be the hero of her life? I wish there were more romantic films because romantic films can lead to beautiful adventures after we leave the theater. Wow. (laughs) Okay, and what what about that uh, made you choose that poem? Um, well, I like the imagery of holding hands at the movies and whispering at the movies because, like, girls would like that. Does anyone else have any observations about the poem? Um, you know, I kind of like the part, uh, will I always be the hero of her life? I mean, do you guys really think like that? That is pretty sweet, isn't it, Jackie? Yeah. And the part of wonder- about him wondering if she's going to kiss him, how cute is he, right? I know, he's so vulnerable. <laughs> oh, <my> so vulnerable. <laughs> Professor Clark, uh, my poem really represents the romantic period well, and I'd really, really like to... Fine, just- Clay. Let's hear your poem by Byron. <laughs> she walks in beauty like the night. You know what? I'm sorry, Clay. I feel the class would best be served if we heard more from Jed right now. Jed, do you have any more to uh, share? Yeah, I do. This awesome. one is called Tropical Islands. Awesome. Okay. Um, for this one, though, could you, like, say it differently? Like, with, you know, like a Russian or a French accent or something? Ooh, an Italian accent, just like Fabio. Oh, my gosh. I'd be so hot. Can you imagine? Ugh. Yeah, I, I can try something European. And you know what? I don't know. Maybe, like, try loosening up a little bit, you know? Like, you know, like, get really comfortable. Like, like, do you need to have all those buttons on your shirt buttoned? Or can oh, you... yeah, take it off. Take it off. <laughs> I guess they don't have to be all buttoned. There. Okay, good. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Sometimes there's no place I'd rather be than on a tropical island. We seem to have it all to ourselves. Just me and my special lady. The only sounds we hear are our hearts beating as one. And the only music is the music we made together. That was... Wow. Um. Hey, Jed, do you happen to have the CD cover for this album on you? Uh, yeah, it's right, it's right here. Whew. Well, there he is right there, isn't he? He's just standing there. See, he's not wearing a shirt. No. There's no way those suspenders are going to rein in those pecs. Oh. Oh, and there he is, leaning over a Rolls Royce. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I usually don't like it when men wear French cut bathing suits, but on Did Fabio. Did I get the points Damn. I needed for today, Professor? Yeah, uh, yes, Jed, very good. Uh, you nailed it. Oh, good. Um, Class, you're free to go for today. Uh, hey, Jed, do you mind if I hold on to this CD for a while? Uh, sure, Professor. Professor Clark, do you want me just to leave my poem here? Oh, my or? gosh, Clay, I swear, just leave it. Um, can I borrow that CD when you're done? Get your own copy, Jackie. Listening to Livewire Radio with music, conversation, and comedy, we stimulate every part of your brain, including the area that used to house the Iliad, but now holds all the names of the cast members on Jersey Licious. <laughs> Coming up, authors David Rakoff and Jonathan Lethem and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to LiveWire. Our next guest began his life in publishing as an assistant and publicist, then worked for HarperCollins for nine years. His work has appeared in GQ, the New York Times Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Salon, Slate, and myriad other very swanky places. But most of our radio listeners will probably recognize him as one of their favorite contributors to This American Life, starting with his piece, Christmas Freud, about the year he played Sigmund Freud in the window of Barney's department store. He's published two best-selling essay collections, Fraud and Don't Get Too Comfortable. His latest, Half Empty, was just released by Doubleday. Please welcome David Rakoff to Livewire. like there should have been another beat there I'm so stoned from being in the green room I was doing a, this is so much hipper than anything that I've ever done <laughs> by this time of night I'm usually in bed so I just got into it I've been um, uh, snorting rails of coke off of, oh. of the drummers <laughs> so I'm uh, I didn't even yeah I didn't yeah, hear it didn't Sorry. even hear it yeah <laughs> um, well welcome to the show that'll be usable radio for you won't <laughs> Sorry forgive me yeah, we're just going to start. Well, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for it's having me. It's lovely to have you here. We have wanted to have you on the show for so long. We're big fans. Um, I, I talked at the beginning of the show about Barbara Ehrenreit's book, and uh, there's your book, and, and do, do you think that right now we're ushering ourselves into an age of pessimism? I think if you think about what's going on, I can't imagine we could be in any other kind of age. <laughs> But then again, I thought that eight years ago, and I thought that 12 years ago, and I thought that during Reagan, so I'm always wrong. I literally have my finger off the pulse. I never know. Right, right. What, what made you write a book? I mean, you had to research. You did a lot of research for this. Mm, yes, I did, didn't I? <laughs> Late nights in the library. Trips. Different sources. I believe you went to Utah, didn't you? I did go to Utah. <laughs> that says a lot. Uh, far afield I went, yes, <laughs> in my quest for the truth. Right, right. What, what sets you off on this idea to write a book about pessimism? Well, it was twofold. One was my editor at Doubleday uh, very cleverly pointed out that I uh, seemed to have trouble accessing pleasure. And so he thought that that might be a good filter through which to do the next book, you know, my essential, not even capacity to experience joy, but uh, some reluctance to wholeheartedly jump into it. Right, right. Except for tonight. Of course, right, which you, we, we really appreciate that you jumped right in uh, with the band. So one of the ideas in the book that you discuss is called defensive pessimism. Yes. Can you explain how that works? Well, it... It's not mine, uh, my term. And in fact, I don't even know if it's the term of Julie Norm, who's a psychologist uh, who I went to interview that unleashed, you know, was the diving board for the whole book. Defensive pessimism is a kind of anxiety management technique. It's like all pessimism in that it begins with the presentiment of desire, the this will be a disaster. My dance recital will suck so bad. Right. Barry Manilow will (laughs) record, she ruined my song. Right. Yes. Um, That's the presentiment of disaster that all pessimists feel. Defensive pessimists differ from other pessimists in that where a mentally ill pessimist would use that as a pretext to go to bed, uh, the defensive pessimist views the worst case scenario that they can, the worst that they could possibly make up, and they go through it detail by detail. You know, and you oppose it you know, one little niggling detail at a time. Rationally, and you prepare for things that, that exactly. might go wrong as well. So in fact, as you said, you had zero expectation. I think that's irresponsible. I actually think dread. You brought yourself <laughs> dread to zero. Dread is responsible, right. I would go to negative three to negative five. Right. And that way, you're, you're literally almost never disappointed. Although, I have to say, I've been disappointed recently. <laughs> in what? Can, can you talk about an instance? No, it's in personal. What? Oh, okay. But... Uh, but <laughs> 
Now, in, in talking to all these all of these experts, where do you where did you find yourself? Did you go into it thinking I'm maybe I'm a clinically depressed in some way, or maybe I'm I, well, I knew that I was a defensive pessimist, and in, indeed I was assigned the initial story for the New York Times Magazine precisely because of a kind of despairing quality to my writing. Um, that's why they sent me, obviously. I thought, though, that I was a little sadder than I actually am. I could not tease apart the strands of anxiety and sadness. So when I started that piece, which is the first chapter, it took me nine years to write because I could not find my way through that. It turns out you can be completely anxious and completely happy, which I'm very happy to say, I'm not as sad as I thought I was. I'm just anxious. Right, yeah, and anxious, <laughs> anxious makes you feel horrible. And it, it, keep, it, it, it well, puts it an ugly filter on the world. It, yeah. it keeps you a nice person. I, you know, if, if, if that's what it takes to be a mensch, you know, then be as anxious as you want. That's the thing. It's like, I hate to say it, but like, I don't think Dick Cheney feels a lot of anxiety. I would, I would agree with that. So... You know, the, the head that lies happy on the pillow is, is not one you really want to be that close to. Right, well, but I think that it's, it's, it comes back to the point that you made at the very beginning. If you're actually thinking about things, you're going to be upset. Presi- yes, unless and anxious. you're on the board of Halliburton. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. How could you be anything but, but that? But again, I've been wrong. I mean, you know, I was wrong in 1982 when I was a freshman in college. You know, I never, as I said, I would be in bed by now. But in freshman year in college, I thought, you're in New York, do something. So yeah. I went to Danceteria, which is a club. And, you know, I just hated it from the beginning. It was noisy and loud, and the bathroom line was long. And there was some chick who was performing that night on a, you know, a stage the size of this. You know? And she stunk. And I just thought, you stink. And I couldn't wait to go to bed and, and just consign her to the dustbin of history. And it was Madonna. You know, right. So... <laughs> and then, you know, I'm not... I'm not you know, I'm a gay guy. I learned to love Madonna, obviously, but, but she was bad <laughs> that night. Uh, so I'm, I have a negative capacity to predict trends. Sure. I wouldn't bet on me, is what I'm saying. <laughs> In some ways, right. In um, any I, way. it, I, I, I'm wondering if you can give us a little taste of the book, a little reading. Sure, absolutely. This is from uh, the middle of the book, where I took three trips uh, in an effort to prove that I was not immune to pleasure. And... Um, And I'm not immune to pleasure. (laughs) But this is from when I went to Utah. I have come to Promontory Point, home of the Golden Spike Historical Site, which is about 100 miles northwest of Salt Lake City. It was there on May 10, 1867, that the tracks of the Central Pacific met those of the Union Pacific and were joined to form the first transcontinental rail system. It can be hard to fathom that I am at one of the most important places in the United States, but it was here at the Golden Spike that the country turned into, well, a country. The effect was felt almost immediately. This is not metaphoric. The Pony Express ceased operations literally two days later. You can tap, 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 mother ill, come soonest, stop all you like, but if you're relying upon the stagecoach to get you to the deathbed in question, I'm afraid I have some bad news. With the railroads, the trickle of settlers coming by wagon train was suddenly upgraded to a flood of terrifyingly efficient westward expansion. Manifest destiny transformed from the merely notional into reality at a speed never known theretofore. Don't believe me? Just ask the Indians. Scrub plain stretches in all directions to the swayed brown hills in the distance. Even seen from above, the satellite images on Google Earth reveal an expanse as beige and unvaried as a slice of bologna. F. Scott Fitzgerald stopped far too soon when he wrote about the fresh green breast of the New World, affectionately known as Long Island, that bloomed before Dutch sailors' eyes as being the last time mankind came face to face with something commensurate with his capacity for wonder. It turns out there was a whole continent beyond the eastern seaboard to slake the thirst of those seeking such adventure. Standing at the squat commemorative obelisk, I try to conjure the mindset that beheld this vast sear pan of brown dirt with the bare foothills rising in the distance and the far more forbidding gray snow-capped mountains rising farther beyond, all of it under a sky whose unbounded immensity proclaims my insignificance with an irrefutable and terrifying truth. But I cannot do it. How does one take all of this in and still think, yes, yes, I will go ever gaily forward? 
I will endure a pre-industrialized trek over hundreds of miles on a rocking, hard-slatted wagon bench or in a saddle or on foot. I will leave my children behind or I will bring them along and then watch them succumb to scarlet fever, rickets, or infection. On those very special occasions when I do wipe my ass, it will be with dry, sharp-edged leaves. One night, I will have an abscessed molar extracted by some half-blind chuck-wagon drunkard wielding a pair of rusty pliers, and I will employ my own just-past Neolithic tools to make this railroad, this house, this town, and one fine day with my remaining teeth, I will have to bite down on a leather strap while they amputate my gangrenous leg without the benefit of anesthetic, and then I will hobble 20 two miles on foot, one foot, so that I might then climb a scaffold back in town in order to carve a tribute to his glory into the unyielding granite escutcheon of a cathedral. How did they do it? The monks and the abbots who hold the rocks to build their monasteries on craggy Himalayan peaks and kept at it until the job was done. Ditto, the conquistadors who even fueled with the promise of gold saw those jagged stratospheric peaks of the Andes and didn't just say, oh, this. I'm going back to Spain. It seems frankly remarkable that anyone anywhere ever attempted anything. David Rakoff. <laughs> I think that it's, I mean, it's obvious to me you can find joy in anything. <laughs> Even Utah, clearly. Um, before you go, I did want to ask you um, about, are you familiar with Dan Savage's It Gets Better campaign? Yes. I was, I, in, in the book, you talk a little bit about your high school experiences. And I'm just wondering, certainly a campaign entitled it's Get, It Gets Better may go against your belief system. Um, but do you feel like a campaign like that, where, uh, where people that you look up to uh, told you that things would get better, do you think that that might have helped you back then? Yes, I wonder if I could have heard it. I, I, I love the campaign that they do, and I think it's really beautiful, and I saw their video, and I absolutely cried. But um, I don't know that I could have heard it at the time. But I don't also equate my narcissistic melancholia with anything like the danger that these kids are in. I lived right. in a big city. Uh, you know, I, I come from a liberal family. It was easy to be faggy where I was. Um, <laughs> I mean, it just was. You right. know what I mean? I'm not in danger. I wasn't in danger in that way. Yeah, I mean... D- but do you think that, that as, a, as a defensive pessimist, do you think that promising these kids that things will improve, is that a good thing to do? Yes, absolutely. It really does yeah. improve. I mean, getting older was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, if high school is good, you can pretty much guarantee someone that it's going to get worse. You know, those people Isn't for whom high school to was see great? the people who peaked? Yeah. And now, oh... That's why they've never called me back. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you briefly, um, you talk about secrets in the book and how your mother was a psychiatrist, your father was a psychotherapist, so you were taught to be very discreet, and you are a very good listener. What do you think about what's happening right now with the Moth and Storytelling series and how uh, forthcoming we are, we've become as a culture? I'm not comfortable with it, which is an obviously strange position considering that I write somewhat personal essays. Right. But I keep my life very inviolate. I'm not very comfortable with a lot of uh, disclosure. There are a lot of storytelling series in New York City going on right now that are just sort of like, basically, come and tell us the worst thing that ever happened to you. Or, you know, it's a new storytelling series, Unindicted Crimes. And it's like, (laughs) why would I tell you about a crime that I committed? Right. I don't want to go to jail. You know, it's the same thing. It's like, or he's like, here's the thing, horrible cringing. It's like, well, if I'm cringing horribly, I'll keep it to myself and eat secretly at home. You know, it's just <laughs> while crying. But it's not, I'm not super comfortable with the level of disclosure. Uh, I think that, you know, we're going to rue and there will be a market correction and people will just sort of keep it to themselves a little bit. And I welcome those days when I will have no career. Exactly. Well, we won't welcome it. Um, the book is half empty. It's a wonderful book. Highly recommended. There is a warning on, on the front. No inspirational life lessons will be found in these pages. Uh, David Rakoff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very us. much Absolute for having pleasure.
That was author David Rakoff, and you're listening to Livewire Radio, variety for the age of ADD. If you live in the Portland area, come to our October 22nd show at the Alberta Rose Theater. Guests include the creatives behind the hit Smell Like a Man, Man, Old Spice campaign, bluesman Curtis Salgado with Alan Hager, Sean Flynn and the Royal We, and others. Visit our website at livewireradio.org for more information. This year at Wordstock, there are quite a few workshops budding writers can take, one of which focuses on how they can use social media to market their work. In this educational vein, Livewire presents host Courtney Hameister and author Steve Almond reading a recent email correspondence they had regarding authors and Twitter. Dear Steve, why aren't you on Twitter? Susan Arlene is, and I found out all about her chickens on there. She might even get some llamas. I feel so much closer to her. You're missing out. Love, Courtney. Courtney, Susan Arlene has chickens? Oh my God. This is huge. As you are no doubt aware, I keep meticulous tabs on which farm animals are being raised by which New Yorker staff writers, but I've long pondered how I might instantaneously inform other New Yorker staff writer farm animal enthusiasts about these developments. Are you suggesting that such technology now exists? Please tell me more. No, really. (sighs) Dear Steve... That's right. Mock me in my little Twitter feed. Or, better yet, mock Susan in all 80,481 of her book-loving, disposable income-having followers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that 80,480 more followers than you have? I mean, you do still have that one guy who follows you around with a box of melted Mars bars offering you hot rock massages. Or did the restraining order finally go through? In any case, you're right. You don't need social media. I'll tell that to all my friends who keep posting your rumpus columns on Twitter. Dear Courtney, um, you say a hot rock massage is like it's something dirty when, in fact, it's something verifiably therapeutic that only turns dirty if I pay extra. Still, I I see your point. If I can find a way to exploit this dynamic new social media platform, I will eventually earn thousands of wealthy followers who just happen to crave a reading experience that's limited to 140 characters. If I hone my craft, I may eventually work some of these folks up to whole paragraphs. Oh, it, it won't be easy, I know that, but an aging pornographer can always dream. It's... It's like Sarah Palin recently wrote on her own very literary Twitter feed. If Obama not Hitler, why he kill granny and eat bones in Oval Office voodoo ritual? (laughs) R-O-T-F-L-T-M-S-B-I-F. Roll on the floor laughing till my soul bursts into flames. Uh Dear Grandpa... If you're suggesting that Twitter shortens one's attention span, I have this to say to you, dear sir. OMG, Justin Bieber just posted pics of his pet rabbit, BRB. Court, I'm assuming BRB means be right, Bieber, but it could also mean bring you a righteous boner. Life is so mysterious. I sometimes think we're getting stupider and meaner and more frightened as a species and that all these electronic conversations are just ways of distracting us from that cold hiss of self-revelation. Justin Bieber sounds like a very sensitive young man, even if he wears his hair like a lesbian. (laughs) Your faithful correspondent, Steber. Dear Steve, you're right. It's all a distraction. And I've been blind to it because I can't see past my screen. I think I'm connected to something real, to some one real, but it's just this digital simulacrum of a life where I don't have to think about the fact that I'm going to die alone because I have 1,400 friends who ostensibly prove otherwise. But when I look back on my real life, I'll just see myself alone with my laptop, sitting at various desks and couches with big gulp glasses full of Diet Dr. Pepper and quiet desperation. (laughs) This is a big revelation, Steve. I have to go tweet about it or it's like it didn't happen. Dear Dr. Courtney Pepper, you portrayed me as some kind of Kaczynski for not submitting to the adrenaline prod of Twitter, but I assure you that I too spend too many hours staring at a screen and neglecting my loved ones. 
For example, right this minute, my darling infant son Judah is in the next room playing with kitchen knives. (laughs) They're not that well sharpened, but still. (laughs) My machines are supposed to make me feel useful, but I mostly use them to keep myself safe from the bad data of the world, all the suffering I know is out there and is somehow my responsibility, but that I feel helpless against. If I did have a Twitter feed, that's what my tweets would be about. Trying to write my novel, helpless. Tea party on the TV again, helpless. Judah bleeding all over floor, helpless. The good news, and there is good news, is that people are still feeling and still want those feelings known. They still need to touch and be touched by other people. Christine O'Donnell got that much right. Fear not, dear sweet Courtney. You are leading an actual life. You do not own chickens or rabbits, nor do you spend enough time contemplating eucalyptus leaves, but your hair does have its own Bieberish moments. And many people, including this entire audience, would be most delighted to give you a hug or at least poke you on Facebook. Your loyal follower, Steve. (laughs) Steve Almond, everybody. Thanks, Steve. you're listening to live wire radio with music conversation and comedy we're like a great date but without the possibility that we'll eventually get together and then break up after we find out that you've been cheating on us with this american life you public radio hussy we'll be right back Welcome back to Livewire. Our next guest grew up in a commune in Brooklyn as the son of an avant-garde painter and a political activist. He grew up to be one of the country's most beloved and prolific writers and editors. He's published around 100 essays in places like Salon, Rolling Stone, Harper's, and The New Yorker. He's edited anthologies on Philip K. Dick and Amnesia, and he's now published eight novels, including the National Book Critics Circle Award-winning Motherless Brooklyn and New York Times bestseller Fortress of Solitude. His latest book is Chronic City, and it happens to be the New York Times Book Review's best book of the year. Please welcome Jonathan Lethem to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that's the kind of music I'm hearing just before I die. <laughs> Unless you're going to die immediately. Yeah, well, no, that, that, you know. That'll work. We've got the music out of the way. Exactly. So I wanted to, to talk a little bit. Uh, how, how many of your books have been set either in Brooklyn or New York um, out of the eight? Three novels outright. You know, two Brooklyn novels and this Chronic City is a, is a, is a Manhattan book. Right. Um, and then there's the first chapter of uh, a book called Girl and Landscape, which is set in Brooklyn Heights, but nobody remembers that because the rest of the book is on Mars. Oh, of course. Right. Well, I, I, I read Motherless Brooklyn when it came out, and um, it was set in Brooklyn. Brooklyn was very realistic, but of course had your, your fascinating, interesting, quirky characters. Whereas the, in, in this book, New York is... I felt like it was a little like Wes Anderson's New York, that kind of dreamy... You know, it's your house, but not your house, New York. It's mm-hmm. New York, but not New York. Yeah. What, what was the impetus for you to, to write a book and kind of 
skew the city a little bit? Well, I guess I started to see somewhere in the middle of this decade, we've just gone through the first first one in the 21st century, I started to see Manhattan as a kind of um, dry run for virtual reality, as a place that had been virtual for a while already, uh, you know, made up of projections and fantasies and imagery and, you know, I mean, Madison Avenue is where the idea originated that you could sell the sizzle instead of the steak. And, and so I, you know, I certainly, even growing up with great access, you know, right across the bridge, Manhattan was a dreamscape for me, a kind of a place of, of you know, fantasies and, 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 and notions as much as real pavement that you could walk on, a real pizza that you could eat. And um, so I wanted to try to just, you know, bring that into being in the book. So it's a, it's a Manhattan that's sort of uh, crumbling into, into the virtual around the edges. Right. What do you think about what's going on in our culture, our increasingly virtual reality? That people are living more lives. You actually, you'd recently did an interview in Second Life, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I did. I, you know, and I put a, I, I put a kind of um, a, a degraded, you know, a, a more corrupt or sort of pathetic version of Second Life into the book. It's called Yet Another World. Um, but I also, my characters in the book are also on eBay a few times, and in a way, I think that's, you know, Second Life is fascinating. It's really great. But that idea that um, the the virtual life when it comes to get you is going to be very exotic and seductive and and you'll be in Tokyo, you know, eating chocolate sushi on you know on a cloud is um is I think a kind of a blind for the fact that actually uh virtuality is already here. We're all already enmeshed in it in all sorts of really uh kind of podunk ways. I mean like nobody who goes to eBay thinks of themselves as a kind of cybernetic voyager. But here we are going to like an imaginary store and buying stuff from people we'll never see, yeah. you know, in this space. And we, we go and spend time occupying it at a certain level of our being. And so I was interested in the ways in which um, this kind of ordinary, uh, you know, uh, homely version of virtuality is sneaking up on us. Yeah, and the characters in the book are kind of wondering whether or not their world is real. The book was very vivid visually, and I know you were you, you were trained as a visual artist. How did that training serve you when you became a writer? Oh, it's it's funny. I yeah, my dad's a painter, and um, and I grew up you know thinking I was going to be a little art kid, and I went to um, music and art high school where I got to spend my you know junior and senior year like carving marble with a chisel instead of doing math and stuff. But um, when I threw that over. And, and began writing, in a funny way, I didn't think it had any any relationship at all. And and my early writing isn't visual, or at least I don't I don't think it is. I don't spend a lot of time on the visual descriptions. But the way fiction works um, is tricky. In in some cases, the less you say about uh, stuff, the more the visual eye of the reader floods in and supplies that detail. And so I've come to understand that when people um, as, as you've sort of done, just refer to my work as having this element of, of um, visual evocativeness. It's often that I've actually withheld something. I pretty much never say, you know, what people's faces look like. He had a crooked, you know, noble nose or whatever. Uh, I just don't really do that very easily. Um, instead, I kind of set up um, frames that you dream your way into, I guess. So essentially negative space, but negative with words. Negative space, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you actually beautifully, one of your characters at one point, has hiccups constantly, and all that you did was put a tab in between the words where he had the yeah. hiccups, and it was, yeah. a, it was this perfect hiccup Proof, as, as a reader. reading that was a nightmare. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at it just thinking, what's, what's wrong here? Um, but I, I also just wanted to ask you one, one, one final question. There's a lot of people here who want to write, and um, you have this thing that all writers uh, want desperately, and that is that you are ridiculously prolific. Um, and you've, you, there's a quote of you saying, I've been in a hurry. Writing is another meditation that's also a frantic compensation. Why are you in a hurry? Well, you know, I guess I was, I was listening to David just now, and I identify so much with being um, not unhappy but anxious. You know, I definitely am uh, uh, keeping, keeping something at bay. But I also, it just seems, uh, to me, my models when I was, you know, uh, willing myself to become a, a published writer were 
were people like Graham Greene and, and, and Philip K. Dick and, and uh, any number of others, Muriel Spark, who left behind 40 novels, you know, and I'm not even remotely in that, in that zone. Um, I'm not actually that quick. I'm just kind of dogged. I just trudge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's going well, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's working out nicely. Um, so the book is Chronic City. Uh, Jonathan Latham, thank you so much for, for joining us. Me. It was such you. a pleasure. That was Jonathan Lethem, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, won't you? Because Steve Jobs needs more of your attention. Tonight's special Wordstock show is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Whole Foods Market, who believe in helping you to eat your words. Words like whole grain, locally grown, and organic, as well as a few uh, personal favorites of ours. Beer, truffles, chocolate, and mushroom. Those tiny little corn thingies that look like baby corn and turducken. Thanks, Whole Foods. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Sarah Jackson Holman. upon me, silently approached me, loud in every way but without a sound. Thoughts of untie me when this saw I taste makes me good to be free or to see the light again. Unreachable things past your eyes, I can't trust. They're so full of lust. Fine words fall from your mouth like dust. The pretty boy, I'm waiting for the wrinkles, they'll rest. Words pulse like blood through the corridors of my heart. They pulse and pound, taking me worlds apart. From my pen, the red ink gaps and it flows. Stain with my yearnings to be free. Frog falls on the ground with a smoke of cigarettes, reducing life's vibrancy to a mere silhouette. To shape shift through the fog, this shift makes me good to breathe, you to see the sound again. Words pulse like blood through the corridors of my heart, of my heart, taking me worlds apart. A man who has been sitting among all the writers in our audience, writing his wee poet hands off. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. <laughs> 
What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned I want to write you a love poem, you fans of the word, you devotees of the page. You have no idea how much I love you and your beautiful glasses. Remember when Fabio got hit in the nose by a seagull while riding a roller coaster? That's how I feel whenever I'm with you. While you are reading on Max, I get dizzy from your learned self-absorption. I feel like every bird in the world wants to attack you and thank you and make the bridge of your nose explode with blood. I want to write a love poem you'll remember that's worthy of you, like a Sarah Jackson Holman song. Something like a roller coaster, but memorable, like a roller coaster not moving very fast, but moving kind of sexy. A roller coaster that stops frequently at cocktail parties, for instance. You never know, at the top of the first hill, someone might hand you a saxophone and you're drunk enough to think you can play it, and you do, perfect and sonorous, at least as far as you know. And people wearing iron clothing are kind of kneeling at your side, like Princess Leia did to Luke Skywalker on the front of the Star Wars poster, and showering you with rose petals or rubbing your pectoral muscles, whichever may be more appropriate for your gender. (laughs) I don't want this to be a poem you're pessimistic about. Pessimistic about its ability to move you to shaking, shuddering joy and spiritual fulfillment. I don't want it to be a poem you barely remember. The one you see, I think it had love and like soft breezes blowing through something. Perhaps there was a nipple in Utah, maybe. But how can I make you remember it? What do you remember? Do you remember simple I love you like poems? Or do you need an extended metaphor that involves, let's say, two trains ramming each other in Utah after conquering a magnificent continent? Simply, I want this love poem to be pure and beautiful like the Dalai Lama. Perhaps a love poem is awkward in this day and age, kind of like how the Dalai Lama looks on a treadmill. In fact, I think the Dalai Lama looks weird doing anything, driving a car, eating a sandwich, wearing those glasses. The Dalai Lama should be doing things like they do on the Flintstones, like moving his car with his feet, and an elephant or Marlon Brando should walk on his robe to iron it. And maybe he should write this love poem with, like, a bird's tail for a pen. And maybe that's finally what you desire. And when someone says, hey, Lama, help me, I'm having an existential crisis over here. The bird will turn to the camera and say, how do you think I feel? Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) Yeah, I want to write you a love poem like that. I love you, word lovers. Thank you so much for coming out. Our thanks to our guests tonight, David Rakoff, Jonathan Lethem, and Sarah Jackson Holman. The Mutton Chops were Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Paul Evans. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Old Foods Market, Buchanan Andrelli, Altschul, and Sullivan, Fitchin Associates, the Falcon Art Community, and Willamette Week. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as You Fine People. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brunberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Paul O'Brien. And lighting by Rhiannon Betts. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath, and Siren of Sound Pachinowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. This show's guest writer and performer was Shelley McClendon of The Liberators and Sweat. Production management and lighting by Drew Flint. Stage management by Stephen Alexander. Theme by Courtney Mondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Cassell Communications. Big thanks tonight go to Greg Netzer and the entire Wordstock staff. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes with my book recommendation of the week. It's called The Saurus. It's kind of wordy, but it's also loquacious, turgid, and verbose. Check it out. Dear Livewire, 
When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 